0: The issue of whether intersectionality has purchase in contexts beyond its origin, in the Indian context, for instance, continues to remain a matter of debate.
1: A political struggle that tries to analyze this interlocking aspect of the oppressions, of the experiences of marginalized or dissident identities.
2: My work is really interested in the limitations that we find with certain forms of intersectional analysis.
3: Welcome, listeners, to the inaugural podcast episode, episode one of UnderSong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. With the help of the editors of this podcast, including uh, Sophia Huffinger, uh, Katusha Bento and, and Nasir, Nasir Mir and myself, Shira Vattisaria, we sounded different titles exploring the idea of uh, what kind of space we wanted to open through this podcast. And undersung represents a commitment to amplifying the space for listening to what gets too easily buried, erased, or forgotten. In listening, to the con- uncomfortable legacies of empire and coloniality that that shape the present this podcast serves as a local and global platform to exchange critical thought around race and and the making of worlds otherwise this podcast emerges out of race ed uh, a cross university network concerned with race racialization and decolonial studies from uh, multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary perspectives um Undersong, the Ray Said podcast, is alternatively hosted by Katusha Banto Nasser Mir and myself and it receives curational and technical support by Sophia Huffinger and the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Welcome all, Uh, we have uh, the honor, the really exciting honor of inaugurating this episode with um, three of our own brilliant scholars here at the University of Edinburgh, um, Dr. Radhika Govinda, Dr. Katusha Bento and Professor Tommy Curry together here on a conversation about intersectionality and its usages between the global north and global south. Um, and the episode emerges in collaboration with Gender Ed, this episode in uh, Gender Ed, which is a, a cross university hub for gender and sexuality studies from an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, so just a quick introduction to our, our speakers and, and you can access their full biographies on the, the cloud where this podcast lives so dr katusha bento is a lecturer in race and decolonial studies um, with national and international experience working with the intersections of racialization politics and race multiple constructions of gender formations of nation and, and nationality migration black diaspora discourse and affective economy Her background is rooted in the black movement in Brazil, Samba community, and Colombo territory. Her research and teaching are interdisciplinary, exploring black feminism, critical race studies, decolonial studies, queer studies, critical uh, critical rhetorical analysis, and education. Professor Tommy Curry is a distinguished professor of Africana philosophy and black male studies, he joined the philosophy department at the University of Edinburgh in the fall of 2019. His, his research interests are in Africana philosophy and the black radical tradition. His areas of specialization are 19th century um, eth- ethnology, critical race theory, social political theory, and black male studies. He is the author of The Man Not. Race, Class, Genre, and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood, published by Temple University Press in 2017, which won the 2018 American Book Award. Dr. Radhika Govinda is a senior lecturer in sociology at the School of Social and Political Science, University of Edinburgh. She holds an M.A. from the Paris Institute of Political Studies, Séance Po, France and a PhD from the University of Cambridge, UK. Prior to joining the University of Edinburgh, she held a lectureship in Gender Studies at Amdakar University, Delhi, India. At Edinburgh, she sits on the steering committee for the University's Gender Ed and Race Ed Network. Her research bridges the field of sociology of gender, international development, and South Asian studies. Radhika's work demonstrates the importance of understanding gender politics at the intersections of caste, class, race, ethnicity, and religion, in women's and social movements, in development policies and practice, in everyday social relations, in rural and urban spaces, and in the global dynamics of knowledge production. So on this note, I think we'll we'll turn it over for discussion um and i thought as a as an entry point since all of you have um since all of you are in in an active process of bringing um kind of new ideas and new thinking towards the project of intersectionality we thought it's important to start from the work that you're embedded in and the kind of critiques that you you've already engaged with and so um What we'll do is we'll start with some of the questions that kind of animate your own scholarship. Um, And and Radhika, um, I'll start with you. So in reading your chapter, uh, Interrogating Intersectionality, Dalit Women, Western Western Classrooms and the Politics of Feminist Knowledge Production, you ask the question, well, two questions I'll pull out. One, actually, you ask a number of questions in that chapter, but I'll just just name a couple. So one, does intersectionality have purchase in making sense of the multidimensionality of identity and inequality outside the context of its origins? Number two, what conceptual debates does it raise as it travels southward? Um, and so I think you know part of that question is also asking what is what is its relevant relevance to Indian feminism. Thank
0: you, Shaira. Thank you for that wonderful um, introduction. And it's um, really um, my my pleasure and honor to be part of this um, inaugural podcast um, of Ray said, and to to be in the the amazing in the company of such amazing um, scholars um and. Teachers like yourselves, um, like Tommy and uh, Katusha and Shaira. Thank you so much um, for for this opportunity and for 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 being part of this um, first uh, podcast. So um, to to um, engage with the questions that you've um, pulled out from my uh, work, Shaira. Thank you for that. Um, does intersectionality have purchase outside the context of its origin and what is its relevance to indian feminism um i suppose um i'll begin from well what what is where does this term intersectionality come from and then kind of make the linkages along if that's okay. Um, I kind of um, I'm thinking also in terms of how this is intended um, as a pedagogical resource the podcast and so I'll, I'll kind of begin uh, with Crenshaw. So we all know that um, black feminist legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality in the late 1980s to address the um, issue of black women failing to be recognized as an entity in their own right. Black women were also said to be falling between the cracks of um, the feminist movement and the anti-racist movement in the U.S., what with um, the feminist movement being dominated by white women and their perspectives, their issues, and the anti-racist movement being dominated by black men and their perspectives to the exclusion of black Women. But this is not to say that um, Crenshaw was the first to draw attention to these kinds of um, concerns. In um, the U.S. context, one often refers to Sojourner Truth and her um, famous entire "Woman's speech in 1851 in Akron, Ohio. Um, but this was all around the same time um, as when Savitri Bhai Fuley, was setting up schools for low-caste, untouchable girls. Um, that's girls from the Dalit community in Maharashtra, India. Um, so when we're thinking about the relevance of um, intersectionality in, for Indian feminists in the Indian context, um, um, what I'm trying to do here is to kind of trace that um, That. Uh, The the engagement with those concerns in the Indian context, even though the term intersectionality was not employed in, you know, back then Um, and not unlike in uh, the UK and the US where women of color have felt excluded, if not erased by erased from feminist and anti-racist movements and knowledge production, Dalit women in India, in contemporary India, so even today, um, have, uh, are facing a similar uh, plight, have faced a similar plight vis-a-vis the feminist movement and the anti-caste um, or the Dalit movement, and also in the academy. So a number of um, scholars and activists, most notably uh, Ruth Manorma, and Gopal Guru have drawn attention to how Dalit women are um, thrice oppressed. So in terms of caste, class, and gender, and that Dalit women speak differently from um, from upper caste Hindu, that is Savarna women. But actually, quite a quite a bit of this engagement has been. Um, framed in terms of what um, Marie Hancock has called uh, with reference to the use of intersectionality in the Western context as intersectionality-like thinking. Um, that is the idea of um, triple oppression, as if each oppression were piled on top of the other um, in an additive fashion rather than in an interlocking one. In more recent years, um, several scholars, most notably Shamila Rege, have taken up the concept of intersectionality in the sense of interlocking systems of oppression. And the recent um, Hathra's case, the brutal gang rape of um, Manisha Valmiki in Uttar Pradesh, North India, actually um, demands that we look at sexual violence through an intersectional lens. That is not, um, not only that her gender identity, but also how it intersected with her caste and class identities have to do with her rape. So Dalit women are often um, sexually harassed, um, even um, are raped to settle caste disputes um, in the Indian, in fact, in the South Asian context. And this is um, still a reality for the majority, for the large majority of Dalit women in India in 2020. In my own work um, on And I'm kind of locating, what I'm trying to do here is kind of locating, um, uh, trying to place intersectionality, the engagement of intersectionality um, in the Indian context in relation to how it's been engaged with elsewhere in the world. And then um, bring in um, how my own work on um, NGO-led feminist activism in North India um, also draws on intersectionality as critical methodology in the way that uh, Patricia Hill Collins understands it. That is, mm, in terms of not only oppression, but also privilege to show that today there is a small but significant minority of Dalit women who can no longer be identified as oppressed, that actually class differences are um, emerging between activist Dalit women and those Dalit women whom um, they seek to mobilize. And of course, um, the issue of whether intersectionality has purchase in um, context beyond its origin, um, in the Indian context for instance, continues to remain a matter of debate, um, a debate which actually exploded in the academic world in India in um, 2015, when Nivedita Menon published an article which argued that intersectionality has nothing new to offer um, or nothing significant to offer in the Indian context. And Mary John published another article to counter Menon's uh, position. And the debate was um, essentially centered on whether intersectionality can be used, um, like the question your, the question that you um, wanted me, uh, w- you know, w- started off with, Um, in terms of whether intersectionality can be used beyond the context of its origin. Um, a question actually that we find has not only troubled, um, Indian feminists, but also inter interlocutors of intersectionality in this part of the world. Um, we find that, um, with the work of sirma bilge, we find that with the work of, um, writing of Gail Lewis. Um, and we find that with um, the kind of positions, different positions that um, scholars like Kathy Davis have taken on this. Um, but for now, what um, I, I will stop here for now, um, I, I would like to at some point um, speak about uh, intersectionality, um, bring the conversation back to uh, the global north and our teaching practice. Um, but I'll wait, um, Shaira, if you, you know, for an opportunity to do that.
3: That's great. Thank you so much, Radhika. I think also what you're, what you're kind of drawing our attention to, and you do this in, in your chapter as well, is kind of the, the difference between the formation of intersectionality as a concept of, uh, as a mode of analysis versus its understanding as a lived as a lived reality and and i think what you're i mean you you actually date the 19th century as the starting point for where we start to see intersectionality um um develop uh in terms of in, in through kind of lexicon even even if it's not adopted through the the analytic of intersectionality itself so i think that's really helpful to 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 think about in in kind of widening its the temp you know its temporality um so maybe Katusha, do you want to come in on here? I'll just pull out your question, actually, that I, I I really enjoyed thinking about as well. From your, is it a chapter or article? I think it, I think it's the ch- a chapter. Yeah, that was
1: in the chapter.
3: Yeah, her story, her stories, Black Brazilian women narrating intersectional oppression in the UK. And um, actually, your this chapter does something really interesting in this conversation because it moves um, it moves the question of intersectionality between the global South and, and North. And what you have, so what you ask is, um, how has interna- how has intersectional oppression um, affected Black Brazilian women's experiences of diaspora in the UK? Um, and specifically thinking of, thinking about the ways that they navigate their lives through British institutions. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, well, this particular chapter
1: that I sent to you is to be published in a co-edited book by Kimberly Crenshaw called "Reframing Intersectionality," and. I think what Radhika is bringing is amazing because it's exactly the the kind of homework we need to do in how we are going to use intersectionality in a more situated context or concept that doesn't use intersectionality just as a scientific issue or a scientific concept, but a political struggle that tries to analyze this interlocking aspect of the oppressions of the experiences of marginalized or dissident identities so that's what I was trying to do when uh, talking and kind of a uh, well not only it, it wasn't just a conversation with black Brazilian women living in the UK it was also the promoting some of the experiences in in solidarity uh, movements, we organize a few sessions to help each other and also to follow this, these lives, not only as part of my research, but also part of what I do in my outside my office hours. Yeah, so it was um, it was necessary to understand that intersectionality is hand in hand with what I, I understand as affective economy, not just because it affects but also because um, affects in terms of um, impacts, right? But because it, it, it is part of the effect that we feel, uh, it is part of how we, uh, we envision a world that can be more effective or how we understand that these people are being mistreated and effectively speaking uh, that generates a few other, let's say, domino effects in their own lives. Um, and I can bring an example just to illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, one of them, uh, and here I'm going to call her Gabby, uh, was pregnant and she was undocumented uh, at the time, um, needing to get a vaccination in order to do her prenatal uh, um consultations. Um, And because she was afraid of being undocumented, um, she understood that the nurse was calling the police on her. So she ran away from the hospital. She was called to say uh, from the by by the nurse saying that well you need to come back otherwise i'm going to call social service because you are you are injuring the life of this uh, unborn child and um, you have to continue with the prenatal so she was put in a situation uh, in which she was feeling under pressure and under the constant um, threat that her life was going to be um, changed at some point because of these institutions. One, they were not prepared to to explain to her what this vaccination would entail. So instead of, well, the nurse was actually just talking to the other nurse to see how she was going to pay for the vaccination because undocumented people need to pay for the service. Uh, instead, she thought it was, it was a loss in translation because the, although the NHS says that there is always a translator available, there isn't. Um, The second aspect is she had to go back because if she didn't, her freedom and her uh, possibility to stay in the UK was also under threat because if uh, they called social service, they would find out that she's undocumented and that would follow into a a whole different process of institutionalizing the undocumented migrant that we are not familiar with because this is something that we don't talk about. This is something that is not in the news. So we don't know what happens to an undocumented migrant in the UK, especially when this migrant is a black woman who is pregnant. She would be put away, not in a prison, but it would be like a a service to where she would have to wait without having permission to even take her own belongings and until the next plane to Brazil where they could pay uh, would take her back what they call home and she doesn't call home anymore because she's, she's making home in, in this new country which is... Um, part of her new life and her migratory project but anyway this this aspects aside i i try to understand how this affects these institutional oppressions affect uh, the lives of this, of these women it traumatizes their the lives their the, the sense of self their sense of freedom their sense of uh, what they can how they can uh, feed their the baby when she, was, uh, when she gave birth, finally, um, she had a problem. She was asking for um, anesthesia, which is the same word as in Portuguese, anestesia. Not very different, right? Uh, nobody understood. Uh, she bled and she, to this day, doesn't know why she had to stay for 22 days in the hospital after giving birth. At the time of the birth, the average days that a woman uh, stays in the hospital uh, was about. Um, so these are the consequences of her being in a constant fear of someone being calling the police while she was breastfeeding. Of course, there are more developments of this story, but I, I just wanted to, to bring this to to show that it's not just a scientific concept, but also a political concept that helps us just to analyze how these oppressions are interlocking. And well, I'm just going to leave there because I think it's important just to to go hand in hand with how Black feminism in Brazil is helping me to think this intersectionality. uh, just to trace a parallel to what Radhika did, which I think it's a very helpful exercise in how we situate our epistemological framework to bring intersectionality into conversation. Uh, before that, Lélia Gonzalez, uh, a, a black amazing woman, a daughter of indigenous and black uh, parents in Brazil, uh, was already talking about the, the performativity, the representation of the mulata body in Brazil, talking about how th- this, this aspect of being a domestic servant and a hypersexualized samba dancer is in expectations of the black woman body uh, being seen in Brazil, uh, puts the black woman in a very particular place in terms of class, gender, and race. And this is an ongoing conversation that comes prior to the concept being coined. This black woman were calling attention to something that is very important. And I think Kimberly Crenshaw just comes as a one of the contributions of so many other people, or so many other women in more particular uh, vision. But I think we can go there as well, because I, I, I do queer studies. So I... I I, I would like to open a little bit more of the gender spectrum. Just to mention that um, these contributions are coming a long way to talk about how these oppressions are interlocking.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much, Katusha. I think what really what strikes me about your work is 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 the way you write through the affective textures of intersectionality, and I think that. When we think about the, you know, the accounts, the kind of ethnographic accounts that you you analyze in this work, is really, you know, it's like layers of of thinking through isolation, depression, like what that what that movement to the UK means for for Black Brazilian women now situated in, yeah, in and this this could probably be another episode in and of itself, the kind of affective life of of migration. But um, but we'll move to to Tommy now, Um, and um, Tommy, we uh, so this is kind of pivoting from the excellent lecture that you gave gave us a few I guess it was a couple months back now for part of the reset series, Um, and so I guess the question that really kind of framed your 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 uh, lecture was, um, does the old articulations of blackness or uh, blackness, black, black maleness or masculinity as violent, uh, sexually aggressive and deviant get disrupted under an intersectional analysis. And I think you, you kind of set the talk up by, by making reference to um, the work of Catherine McKinnon and the kind of, um, I guess, inher- would you say inheritances that- Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that were kind of adopted by by scholars such as Crenshaw um, later on, but yeah. Do you want to? And and I should also just just to, I guess, to emphasize this because this is what struck me as an undergraduate student reading Catherine McKinnon and trying to un- get my head around um, was it is it was it was she thought of as a radical feminist? Was that the? That's right. Yes. Yeah. And um, I guess the controversial claim that she made was that all heterosexual sex is rape. Yeah, and I guess that, that's kind of part of the starting point of this discussion.
2: Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, you know, I think I think it's so difficult, you know, translating uh, some of the issues with intersectionality in various contexts because of, of the kind of life that the theory takes on, um, but, My work is really interested in the limitations that we find with certain forms of intersectional analysis. So if you go back to the 19th century, for instance, um, black people didn't have genders uh, because during enslavement, they were marked by the sexes of their bodies, even as an evolutionary character. So when we appeal to something like what Sojourner Truth is saying, um, it's also important to contextualize that in her relationship with white suffragists, many of whom were ethnologists believed that black men, when black boys reach puberty, they stopped being feminine, right? Because all savage races were feminine, and the maturation to what would normally be a man for a white for, in the white race was actually that the black boy turned into a rapist. So when you look at these suffragists like Phoebe Cousins and uh, you know, <laughs> it's practically all of them. So Susan B. Anthony, et cetera, uh, You get these articulations with the idea of, of darker men, black men. Were actually savages that would rape and destroy white civilization. Um, these theories really did influence how we thought about subculture violence theory in the 1950s to the 1970s. Uh, so these theories, as I said in my presentation, were all about using race, class, and gender uh, to map out the contours of poor Black men as being su- what we would call super predators of the United States, or a contraculture um, that was akin to basically the rapist who destroys Western civilization. Uh, In the 1980s, when Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks are doing some of this work, developing intersectionality, they're citing these white feminists that were influenced by these white racist criminologists. So people like Catherine McKinnon, people like Karen Williams and and, uh, Joyce uh, Holmes, uh, people like Susan Brown Miller, right? They're reading uh, Amir Minichum and they're coming to this idea that, well, look, black men, because they're subcultural, because they're savages, will always be a rape threat. And this is what builds this is what becomes known as gender, because in the 1970s, before you, you had conversations about sex and gender, they all happened within the rubric of the family. It was until the 1970s that you're getting these articles in sociology that are trying to utilize women as a separate unit of analysis. And that literally creates a proliferation in criminology around the black and brown male as rapists and influence uh, gender theory. So what my work is is trying to show is that, look, you know, it's, it's great that we're having various conversations about the contours and context of experience, vulnerability, and identity. But when we look at intersectionality as a system, right, we, we've, we're, we've just recently celebrated the 30th year anniversary of the, the coin of the concept of intersectionality, right? We're now starting to get into this idea of the, the kind of radical second wave feminist essentialism that requires not only the kind of vulnerabilities that women are vulnerable to from Catherine McKinnon, but also the construction of racialized men. So when you look at the idea that Catherine McKinnon holds that all women, right, are, are vulnerable to sex and sexual abuse, that also means that you have to construct men, specifically black men as rapists and predators that bring about that kind of sexual vulnerability. And the fact that Crenshaw is utilizing these theories and no one's really remarked upon them in 30 years is what's so worrisome. So for example, there's very little literature in intersectionality that holds that black men suffer or are vulnerable from other kinds of violences besides racism. Now, if you look at Devin Carbottle's work for instance, he'll say, well, look, if you're a gay black man, of course you suffer from homophobia. But one of the other pieces that I think uh, Darren Hutchison point points out in Identity Crisis is that, well, look, even the myth of the rapist is a hyper heterosexual myth, right? It assumes that heterosexual black men have a hyper-masculinity, hyper that links them to savagery, right? Other people, for instance, have suggested that one of the loopholes in intersectionality's account of masculinity is precisely that it doesn't differentiate different forms of, it doesn't have a concept of multiple masculinities, right? So as Harris says, look, if we look at police violence, and, and this is a big topic right now in the United States, over 96% of the victims are black males, right? Intersectionality is not giving us really explanations for why black men are targeted. They're not giving us any kind of effectivity about how black men experience that targeting, right? Like the idea is, well, certain bodies are being erased. And in 2008, you actually have an argument about intersectional invisibility that suggests that we can rewrite black male privilege as Black men dying more under patriarchy, right? So the idea is that because patriarchy focuses on male targets and males are more victims of direct oppression, right, and they're, as they're responding to social dominance theory, that we should read this as a privilege. So most of my work is trying to figure out the nuances of how Black men and other racialized males actually experience oppression, right, which includes sexual violence and rape and disproportionate rates of of intimate partner violence and intimate partner homicides, you know, in various communities and class structures and stratifications, and and how intersectionality doesn't pick that up. And in fact, there's a a resistance, sometimes very hostile, uh, to showing that, you know, black men suffer rates of uh, sexual violence, right, coercive sexual violence or contact sexual violence, uh a race similar than to black women, or that black women could be perpetrators of rape in many of these cases, or that they're victims of intimate partner violence. So there's that essentialism, like that reason that Kimberly Crenshaw really likes Catherine McKinnon when she was in law school about this kind of essential tie uh, that, that womanhood has to certain vulnerabilities. Um, it pushes back, right? It resists certain considerations when you find that certain male groups or certain classes of male groups also experience the same kind of violence that, that women experience. Right. Uh, so in my work, I've tried to utilize things like social dominance theory. Uh, we've talked about uh, racism as a kind of misandric aggression. We've talked about black male sexual vulnerability to capture these experiences of various groups of males throughout the world, especially in the global south, um, that intersectionality hasn't really been able to describe. Uh, the idea from you know contemporary intersectionality theories that we could understand black masculinity as compensatory meaning that if black men don't have the same process as white men, they try to imitate or emulate white men, right? These are really bad social science theories from 1955, right? This is Cohen's work that starts with the idea that poor white boys become deviants because they're not middle-class white boys, right? And, And Bell Hooks and Crenshaw, and I understand their time, right, like this, you know, I understand the time they're writing in. In the 80s, this is what was in vogue, right? But we've, we've, we've made that an ontological claim now that's tied to masculinity, we didn't understand that it was bad social science. So part of the problem of right is also looking at how we're considering racialized males, not just in relationship to the rape of white women, but what we think of as the intra-racial rapists, and, and how we can actually start addressing some of these questions, both empirically, but based on the experience of vulnerability of, of black men and other racialized men throughout the world.
3: Thank you, Tommy, for that um, synopsis actually of, of, of your lecture. I think it's, um, it's really helpful to revisit the kind of genesis of um, early intersectional feminist theory along, along those terms. Um, and actually it struck me that you, I think you mentioned that this conversation has only, has this conversation started to happen um, in the last couple of years and so it seems that yeah it's a timely it's a timely moment to open up these conversations um and yeah i don't know if uh, katusha or radika if either of you wanted to respond specifically to to that kind of you know reintroduction of tommy's work i
1: just wanted to say i think it's beautiful that we we challenge this you know, concepts and even Bell Hook sometimes you can ve- be very heterosexist in her work from from the 90s. but now I, I can see that she has a different engagement with trans identities and she created new venues to discuss that not only in her publications, but also, through you know her YouTube channel kind of thing. You know, she's a she's a, she's a pop black feminist. But I, I wanted to say that um, these conversations are also helpful to to see how they have layers. As you said, so Truth was talking in a context where women from different uh with different ideologies and very racist ones and very um uh, you know, hierarchically putting men in a position that I don't believe black feminism, in a more general way, try to put, but men in a inferior uh, kind of position. Um, I just wanted to trace a, a kind of a parallel uh, because I do think it is still intersectional. Being there, what Sujuni Truth did, she marked a, a, a place, a, of voicing black women's experience that was so important at the time she was christian she was so many things that we don't talk from that kind of mindset anymore right uh, but uh recently and that was last year okay a philia conference organized a few panels that tried to be i'm not gonna trace on the the islamophobic aspect of it, but I will trace on the transphobic aspect of this and they invited a few collectives of black brazilian women um, who uh, were supposed to present the, the fl- black feminist context and activism in brazil one of them is the owner of an editing uh, a publishing house she publishes trans people black people, all the dissident identities are published in, in this publishing house. Um, and she, Padê Editorial, just to mention the publishing house, that's, that's where. And um, she was selling a few books there in this, in this conference. Well, given the nature of the, of the conference, they understood only when they were there, that most of what it was being discussed wasn't aligned with their politics, with their political struggle, and of course that generated a few other um, oppressions uh, when they said we are lesbians and we are black, we are Brazilians and we are in support of trans identities, all the books were found in the trash, uh, it was a consequence of um, they were they wanted to call the police on them and so on and so forth in a in a situation in which well we have black Brazilian women there you don't call the police on on black migrants you just don't um but what i'm trying to say is they they were still you know we can pass centuries and centuries we are still going to have contexts in which white feminists are trying to push an agenda that can be oppressive and it can be completely against what is trying to be delivered at that moment and just not to to lose the 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 narrative or the importance of the narrative of the time yeah I, I know that that's not what he's trying to do Tommy with Sujuni Truth but I just wanted to make sure that um, what what Sujuni Truth brought to us uh, in terms of how she, she came with her motherhood, her spirituality, everything that she had, she gave in that speech. And, well, it could be, it could be an intersectional aspect of how she calls attention to her, the oppressions that she was living, in, and not necessarily with the, the need or the, the intention to call for the parallel agendas that was going on in that particular time.
2: If if I may, uh, I I think that's extremely powerful. But, I mean, there's all these other Black women, like, Francis E.W. Harper, right, that's actually siding with people like, you know, Frederick Douglass during these suffrage debates, right? Uh, And, of course, when we have these conversations, what's usually cited from Sojourner Truth, right, in intersectional literature is not just her validation of, of Black women's experience, which I completely agree with, right? But it's this other part that if Black men get the right to vote, then Black women are going to be treated even worse. So in American intersectional texts, and Black feminist texts, that's the part that they focus on. And then they always cut that quote off short because what Sir Truth continues to say in that speech in 1864 is that we should trust White women because White women know a great deal more about politics than we do because the Black woman doesn't do much but go about cleaning and laundering around for her lazy man, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a context of this speech and an influence that even people like Paula Gilliams have pointed out in When and Where We Enter, that's not really part of the conversation. Now there's, there's lots of black women like Harper, right? Like we could go up to, to Cooper and Wills and et cetera, that are giving us a very strong view of, of black women's experience, which I absolutely have no problem with. But what, I, what I'm trying to point out though, is this relationship right, that white suffragism has had uh, about the negation of Black men from the 19th century, how, even in America, right, because, I mean, if they were using Sojourner Truth like that, I would, I would not have put it in my book at all, right? But Sojourner Truth is used as this launchpad to talk about the deviance of Black men, and then that continues all the way up for 100 years. And all my work's trying to show, for instance, is that, look, we have to talk about Black women's experience. That is a given. In the 19th century, actually, the assumption was that the, the standard of the woman was indicative of the evolutionary potential of the race, which is why Anna Julia Cooper starts off, you know, her essay, the first essay of her book is on womanhood. But what ends up happening when we're talking about the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, is that we get these incredibly negative characterizations of black men throughout intersexual and black feminist literature. So much so that even when other black feminists go to test it, like Patricia Collins' standpoint of epistemology, for instance, right? that there are certain unique values that come about from poor Black women that other groups don't share, we find that Black men hold very many, a lot of those very same values, if not more. Same thing with Evelyn Simeon's work, right? We're actually writing an article that's gonna be sent out today looking at voting behavior in Trump, right? Because the idea that intersexual feminists are making is that somehow Black men are motivated by patriarchy to uh, vote for Trump, but when you actually break down the data set, they're including Afro-Latinos, not just Black men, Black women, and that fundamentally changes the association of outcomes. So I think that in the United States context especially, we have these ongoing problems where some of these very negative racist stereotypes about Black males um, are carried forth under the rubric of intersexual feminism because the debates for different classes of educated Black people to be part of various liberal and reformist movements, establishments, and funding. And then the poor working class Black people, of which I'm part of a community from because I come from the South, right, are, are constantly being demonized and condemned for how they don't match up to the uh, language and the ideas of the elite academy. right? So I think that this is a conversation that we really, really have to have and struggle with. Because while it's important to understand the vulnerabilities of Black women and trans peoples and queer bodies, et etc., there's also this evidence and these experiences of various forms of ma- ma- male groups, right, that have not been taken up whatsoever. Like Crenshaw refused in, Say Her Name, in the Say Her Name report to even talk about Black men who were victims of rape at the hands of police officers. And there are four or five national cases that, that made headlines that are going on right now that have not made it in any form or fashion into any of the reports or activism about sexual violence by the police. Same thing with domestic violence, Black men report some of the highest levels of 12 month prevalence in the United States of domestic violence victimization it has never been taken up with any of the literature over the last 30 years in intersectional analysis. So it's these gaps that I think that we have to really consider um, and talk about, not, not antagonistically, but if there's a limitation of the theories, we have to say, look, either we fix it or we, we just move on to other theories. I think both worlds can coexist.
0: I suppose it's um, also um, a question of how, you know, whether we attribute intersectionality only to Crenshaw, to a specific set of scholars or a- scholar activists. I think um, the way in which, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, necessarily questioning um, the, some of the, some of the critique that you raised in terms of um, intersectionality, um, not adequately engaging with um, black men's condition in the American context. Not, I'm not getting it. I know I'm not debating that. But I, mm, the way I, I think there is, is exactly as you said, it's been several decades since intersectionality was coined as a term. But also if we go back in the um, and kind of trace the genealogy of intersectionality Not the coining of the term, but the understanding um, and the spirit of intersectionality in the way that Katusha and I kind of um, um, uh, spoke about in our interventions earlier. Um, there, There is, if we look at that genealogy and also look at the ways in which intersectionality has been taken up. So it's also, you know, intersectionality has traveled, you know, when we say um, intersection, whether intersectionality has purchased beyond the context of its origin, the context of its origin is not just in terms of, you know, the US and the intersections of race, um, class and gender. It's also in terms of disciplines. So traveling w- across disciplines, traveling across, um, you know, the geopolitical boundaries And when we kind of think about that travel of intersectionality in those different ways, today actually there is, the the ways in which intersectionality has been taken up perhaps is like how Edward Said says that, you know, um, when theories, you know, it's sometimes the way the theory travels and the way it is taken up in the place of its arrival, it might actually be more and greater than the way in which it was originally thought of and conceived of. And I think, I would like to believe that um, with intersectionality, that sort of thing is happening. Now we can kind of, you know, we, we can kind of see that happening in other parts of the world. Much of actually the engagement with um, intersectionality as whether, it's a, you know, whether, is it a theory, is it a concept, is it um, uh, a heuristic device? What is intersectionality? Some think of it as a theoretical system, like what you were saying, Tommy. Um, others think that it's actually just, a, you know, a, it's, um, it's an analytical tool. But, you know, that's what it is. It's not, it's, there is no big framework as such. Um, and I think the way, but much of this engagement, um, you know, on intersectionality, what is it? Um, what does it engage with? Do we only focus on race and the intersections of race and gender? Should that be the primary purpose? Should um, should we look at, um, is there space for looking at other um, identities, other structures of oppression? Um, those kinds of uh, questions and debates have, um, although they are happening in other parts of the world, much of the scholarship, um, which is, uh, you know, which is chronicling these debates, is really very much limited to uh, the US, the UK. It's really limited to the global north, um, you know, Europe, US, UK. Um, And whereas actually there is much more to intersectionality in the way that it has has been taken up in other parts of the world, in the global south. And I think it would be... um, I think that it would be quite an uh, quite an interesting project to kind of trace those multiple ways in which it has been taken up, but also the way it has been debated in other parts of the world. Like I was, you know, I'm, every time I, I, I listen to you, Tommy, I I have to kind of, you know, it takes me a while to um, to process the, the complexity of the things that you're, you know, points that you're raising. And I was thinking, you know, when you're talking about, for instance, um black men and how they have been um you know there there are different kinds of tropes right i mean there is um i I was thinking of the third world woman trope um also about civilization yeah um and you know that um uh, that trope and the black men trope and i was thinking similarly some of those tropes haven't actually left us um, you know, I'm not getting into the genealogy of those tropes and how they've got perpetu- uh, You know, how they've come up, but some of those tropes have still not left us. And in the Indian context, um, in, uh, for instance, in um, my work on uh, how, and again, to do with rape, um, how with the, for instance, the 2012 Delhi gang rape, um, it was the poor, the, it was the working class male migrants who were held responsible for the rape crisis in uh, India's capital city, in Delhi. And so some of those tropes, I think it's also like what, um, of course, it's important to understand where um, and how intersectionality was theorized, but also can I I use intersectionality as, um, as an analytic tool to make sense of and unpack those tropes? So what I'm saying is that actually, um the, the ways in which it's being taken up and used to unpack um social reality uh, to unpack inequalities in different um in, in different parts of the world there might be something there that that um that we might want to look at and pay more attention to in the ways in which it travels and the ways in which um it it kind of changes like, what are the metamorphoses that happen um, to a concept, to a theory in the place of its arrival, which is beyond the context of its origin? If you see what I'm trying to say.
2: No, absolutely, absolutely, and and I'm sympathetic to that, but but I guess I would ask you: Would not racialized men also have a claim to self-determining their own intellectual tradition? All right, and and if if they see social dominance theory or if there's been this kind of, and remember this, and I'll go back to the U.S. context really quickly, remember this debate happened and they created multidimensionality because they thought intersectionality did not take into consideration multiple masculinities seriously, right? So they've been these debates, empirically certain groups have separated from the concept, you know, uh, in the Global South, for instance, you're much more likely to hear about male marginalization or gender side if you're talking about war are actually like the Holocaust, which is another area of interest I have. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to do is look and say, well, look, how are racialized men throughout the global South talking about their conversation? And on the one hand, you have groups of people who are saying, well, look, if we look at the sexual victimization of war, ethnic conflict, abuse, terms like gender side, terms like male marginalization seem to do a certain kind of work. If you're looking at certain groups who study men as hegemonic, right, as prone to rape and violence, those scholars utilize intersectionality. So here I come with a, a paradigm of Black male studies and I'm saying, well, look, I'm, I'm willing to say that concepts travel, but there seems to be a politicized division in the way that Black men, right, South African men, et cetera, are breaking themselves up into groups to talk about these phenomena. And if some, and if people even in Africa and even in, you know, genocide studies Are seeing a division or a problem with how some male constructs or categories are being imported from the United States over there, right? About the use of hegemonic masculinity or compensatory masculinity, et cetera. Then, given that we know for a fact those things are not true, (laughs) right? Because they really only exist in US contexts as theories, why why not create a, a different language? Why not allow? Racialized men to say, look, even if intersectionality isn't what we adopt, but let's have a conversation with it, right? Let's talk about limitations, et cetera. But let's look at how these how these indigenous forms of masculinity have talked about their vulnerability, have talked about their death, have talked about their relationship to imperial power. And that's what that's what I'm trying to do. Because when you get to genocide, it's very difficult to kind of use intersectionality the way that we are, <laughs> you know, because it's such an immediate, you know, and 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 kind of uh, you know, domineering process of violence, right? You know pretty much you're gonna get, you know, the sex-selective killing of men, you're gonna have root branch killings, you know, that's, the identity gets flattened pretty quickly. So we can talk about it afterwards in different aspects with missed. but I'm, I'm really interested in how, you know, male victims, right, when I talk to young boys who are victims of rape, and they're telling me about the pain, and they're telling me that they never thought that they could, they, they were never taught that they could be victims of rape, right? We have grown men, 30 years old, giving us this as their stories. I see that as a gap in the category. Now, that doesn't mean that intersectional feminists can't pick that up and run with it. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is if if we have a tool that that's akin to that kind of vulnerability right now, why not utilize that tool? And I guess I'm only saying that intersectionally, ally has a limitation. And I'm interested in working with a certain set of victims and vulnerability that it really hasn't paid paid much attention to
3: Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Radhika and Katusha. This conversation, um, I feel like it's actually only beginning. And I know we're kind of coming to an end here, but I just want to plug in. I want to pivot from Tommy's point and we just ask another question, which we can talk about if, 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 if you can all stick around. So if, if intersectionality in it in the kind of reference points that, okay and i know there's a there's a kind of thorny question here around origins and what we do about the question of origins where exactly we locate um intersectionality's formation and and also this this tension around essentialism right and and if we can actually move out of that um to recuperate intersectionality as a framework that uh, might, might, might still have um, purchase or usage, and so I, I, you know, I'm wondering as an analytic, is it capable? Is it capable of actually attending to the experiential violence of black men, but also maybe allowing for different representational practices? Is it capable of this? If not, is it, is interlocking capable of this, or um, you know, another another kind of framework that gets used? is assemblage right and i'm wondering if these other kind of analytics that are trying to um name the simultaneity of of um of domination if they're actually capable of um doing something other than the essentialist traps that i think which is the argument you're making tommy around the the early early incarnations of intersectionality so can it be recuperated? If not, do these other analytics do something else um, that, that specifically do pay attention to uh, the experience of black men?
2: Yeah, I, th- I honestly think it's a very difficult question. Um, and look, I've been on both sides on various continents, you know, because this is a new criticism, right? Uh, it's a new kind of argument. So there have been both people who have said, this makes sense. There are p- people that were trying to drive me out of conferences with states. So I think that really the, the crux of it is here. Um, it depends how you want to understand the essential category of woman, and then the association that category will have to have with the relational values or groups. So, a brief example what I mean here is if you say in the black community, black women are victims of rape, that means that you have to have a necessary condition where black men would be the rapists, right? In the gender framework of male, female, right? So, it's a question of whether or not you think that that is an essential analytic category. Devin Carbato and Kimberly uh, Crenshaw and Cheryl Harris think that it is. So literally just last year, and and I really wanna highlight this because I think it really illustrates the differences of how people approach this. Last year in 2019, at the 30th year anniversary, they published an article in Harvard Law Review. Now, the, the, the whole point of the article was to say that everyone else in the world had gotten intersectionality wrong because they did not understand the intersectionality is in conversation, if not derivative from, Catherine McKenna's dominance theory. Now, what's fascinating about this is in 2017, I, make this, I made the exact same argument in my book. I said, look, when you read Kimberly Crenshaw's essays, this isn't really this kind of anti-essentialist argument in theory that we think it is. It's actually very closely tied to dominance theory, specifically around the category of woman, right? So they make that statement. They say Every, all the research for the last 30 years has been wrong. People celebrate it, like, ah, yeah, but nobody wants to bite the bullet on the consequence, right? Because if you accept the argument of dominance theory, it means you have to say there's a characteristic that all women who claim the title of woman share and endure over time. Now, the outcome of that is exactly what we're talking about. Can, as an analytic then it change? Well, I, I think if what Rodica's is saying is true, and we, we look at it from this kind of move and how it's, the categories have been disrupted, absolutely, Right? But I think there's also a politics behind intersectionality, which is one of the reasons that I think it took so long for any substantive critiques to be taken up, which is that if you criticize intersectionality, people feel like you've pushed feminism back 30 years because that's the crowning theoretical achievement. And I don't know if we can get past that part of the argument to start looking at some of the diagnoses and the outcomes, right? Because remember, some people think that intersectionality predicts certain kinds of hierarchical arrangements. And when we test those types of things, like we test relative privilege, we test mortality, we test sexual violation or domestic abuse, intersectionality has not been correct as of yet. So I think that if we look at it as having a predictive force, then some people are going to say, well, empirically it just doesn't hold up. Now, does assemblage theory do this? I think assemblage theory is an awesome idea, of course, borrowing from Foucault and Deleuze. um, And I think Jasper Barr's work makes very salient points. However, if you're dealing with a racialized male context, the question is going to be, why do they get kind of stuck in stasis? So whereas other groups are allowed to have these veritable interactions or relationships, one of the problems with how we study men is that they're almost, this is what I talk about in my book, they're condemned to the corpse. So in every single situation where you're talking about a Western racialized patriarchy, you're talking about disproportionate rates of violence and death against racialized men. I don't know if that could capture that experience. It may be able to. I don't know how it would as of yet because we haven't really started that conversation. So I think there are a lot of things to consider, but you know, I, I think given the move that we've recently made, at least in the literature, I don't know how the analytic becomes separated from this from this concept of male perpetrator, female victim.
0: Yeah, um, if we just kind of rewind back a little bit in and how this podcast began, and um, for instance, I was talking about how intersectionality how I engage with intersectionality, but also how in the Indian context, much of the engagement with intersectionality has had to be, has been with respect to the intersections of caste, uh, class and gender. So it's not race, um, uh, class and gender like in the American context, but actually even within the Indian context, it's really important to look at the intersections of Race, um, race, caste, class, and gender, and I think there are people who are starting to um, study that. Um, if we look at Katusha's um, work, she looked at um, you know she's looking at a different context in the um, in the UK context, Black Brazilian women's experiences. Um, so we there are different um, intersectionality has been used to or engaged with to make sense of different contexts and different. Um, Uh, categories of um, categories, different um, social realities beyond black men in the American context of black men and women and that, you know, the context from which it kind of emerges, so to speak. Um, And I suppose I also want to think, you know, want to draw attention to how, for instance, Nira Yuval Davis, who was, um, who actually was talking about intersectionality without using the term in the, in the British context around the same time as Crenshaw. If you actually look at Floya Anthias and Anira yuval daviss early work, um, I think in the 80s, uh, 83, I think there's a uh, paper they published. They they are talking about intersectionality without, um, you know, in a a different context. Maria Lugones, for instance, uh, talks about intersectionality and doesn't talk about intersections and doesn't talk about interlocking um, systems of oppression, but she actually uses the the metaphor of curdling. Um, and so there are different ways in which intersectionality has been engaged with. Again, I'm kind of, you know, I'm wanting to kind of um, draw attention to that. And I was wondering if, you know, when you when you are, you ask the question of recuperation, right? Um, I think it's a it's an important question to ask also in the current context, because because of the ways in which intersectionality has been taken up. Of course, it's been taken up in the ways that Katusha talked about and I talked about and the way uh, Lugones engages with it and so on. But um, there is also, it's also become something of a buzzword today, right? So intersectionality, there is also the, the, this sort of um, concern that it's becoming depoliticized, that it means it's becoming an empty sort of term because everybody uses it. Uh, not only in the academic context, but also beyond academia. So when we think about recuperating it, it's not only in terms of the ways in which it was originally conceptualized or the context in which it was originally, it originally emerged, but also in terms of the ways in which it's been taken up by different actors within and beyond the academy. I think that that's also um, an important sort of thing to be thinking about.
3: That's great. Thanks so much, Radhika. Um, This, as I said, I feel like this discussion is only is only opening up more and more questions about, you know, the kind of critiques and possibilities of contemporary usages of intersectionality. I think this 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 kind of question of also what what it might mean to think about the context of anti Black racism in the U.S. at this moment, and um, and the the killing of Black men, and what what might it mean what might it mean at this moment to invoke intersectionality, to examine state-sanctioned violence, state-sanctioned anti-Black racial violence. But I I know we kind of have to wrap up here. I wanna just thank all of you again for such uh, thoughtful, textured reflections on the concept of intersectionality, but also taking us through your own creative scholarship it's an immense contribution to the scholarly community that we're building here at the University of Edinburgh. Last comment is for you, Katusha. Oh,
1: thank you for the solidarity. I know we are we are on our time, but uh, I just wanted to to say thank you now that it's going to be the final kind of remarks and say that uh, not holding on to the term intersectionality so much. Makes this conversation so fruitful. So how Tommy organizes in his book the understanding of masculinity, of blackness, of black masculinity, and class and sexual violence—it is for me, my black feminist positionality—is an alternative way to reframe intersectionality. (laughs) Ha ha, (laughs) Tommy. But also. Uh, how the, 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 the Global soul South is talking about that. Uh, I can't just finish with that, without mentioning uh, Silvia Risi, uh, Rivera Kusikanki, uh, Maria Lugones, ha, uh, as Radica already mentioned, Jose Esteban Muñoz, he never mentioned intersectionality, but he has a very queer way to push forward the aspect of, uh, of gender and race in performativity. And he kind of criticizes Butler in a very beautiful way, in a ways that uh, only a black queer Cuban eloquent man could do. So I just wanted to say, even in, in German uh, sociology, Encarnacion Gutierrez Rodriguez, says that she doesn't use the term intersectionality. She says that she uses multiple uh, multiple oppressions and other terms that it's calling out for a multi-language or a multi approach to intersectionality that we cannot make this uh, concept as hegemonic because that would reproduce the norms that oppresses people and that's like this is uh, when we create we create the norm that measures the difference of othering the marginalized voices that stays at the end of this conversation because intersectionality is a difficult concept I took a while to to manage to speak that that word in English because it's difficult right and it's long so whatever makes whatever is helpful for us to understand the multi-dimensions of oppressions, marginalizations, and um, ways to uh, create norms that are putting people, uh, uh, that are, are justifying the erasure, the genocide and the exclusion of people is helpful. So here it is. So thank you everyone for, uh, for the presentations. And I, I just wanted to mention something that Radhika provoked uh, bringing this into the classroom and this conversation that we had in this podcast in the classroom is, is fundamental, it's critical. So thank you for opening this space, uh, uh, Shira, and being here, everyone being here a little bit longer than we should. <laughs> Thanks,
3: Katusha. And that's a wrap. And thank you all, listeners to Undersong Race and Conversations Otherwise. You can find this and all our other episodes on the Race Ed website that is www.race.ed.ac.uk and on the SoundCloud. You can subscribe to receive brand new podcast episodes and share Undersong with colleagues, students, and friends.